thank you. Before I start, I need to thank my extensive IT support team. I come with high expectations for IT, and um, my team never fail me. So Tony and Alex and SP and my husband, Paul, the handsome one over there with the iPad. <laughs> Fortunately, there's only one of them. Um, and anyone else who had any involvement with my requirements this morning, thank you. Um, Stephen Viv asked me to speak this morning quite a few weeks ago, and they asked me to speak on prayer. And uh, as I was thinking about it, I was wondering if they knew, or they were wondering, if three weeks into this having this house of prayer, we'd be flagging a little bit. So they thought, let's send Karen in, and she can, you know, pump them up and get them going. But clearly, that's not necessary. We've put in over 500 hours of prayer. I mean, I don't know what it was on the last count, but it's easily over 500 hours of prayer. So I feel very reluctant to speak about prayer this morning, as you wouldn't go to the Vatican to speak to the Pope about Catholicism, would you? <laughs> it feels like you guys are a bunch of experts. However, I do think that prayer is one of those things where the more we pray, the more we cry out to God, teach me to pray. Teach me how to pray. Teach me what this looks like. I don't know about you, but I have an arm's length list of situations at the moment where I'm fumbling with, with what to pray, with how to pray, with what words to use, with what attitude of heart to have, what expectation to have. And I am praying, teach me, teach me to pray. If that's the same for you, you're in good company because the disciples asked Jesus this. And um, he replied with a whole bunch of teaching on prayer, some of which we're going to look at right now, including the Lord's Prayer. Uh, if you'd like to turn to Luke 11, it should appear magically on the screen. But if you've got it in front of you, that will be just as helpful. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers or mothers, if your son or daughter asks for a fish, will give him, will give her a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, will give them a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we're going to take a look at the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus begins answering this question for the disciples. It starts, Our Father. Now I promise we're not going to spend five minutes on every word individually, but immediately we're challenged by Jesus prescribing our prayer. Throughout this prayer, he uses a corporate um, he uses corporate language. He says, our Father. He talks about us. Give us our daily bread. He's prescribing prayer as a corporate community experience. Jesus states that we're to pray our Father and not just my Father. 
Tony, could you move on to Our Father and the quote from John Wesley? John Wesley, the great theologian and preacher of the 18th century, wrote, The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. The danger of praying, My Father, My God, is that we get to create God in our own image. Or that we'll forget that we're family, you and I. We're doing this thing together. It's important that we get along. It's important that we spend time together, that we get to know each other, that we do this thing together. The challenge of praying our Father is this call to corporate prayer, this call to community life. God is eternal. We cannot change him, but left to our own devices, we'll define him in the way that it suits us best. However, in community, we're called out of isolation. We're called into worship. We're called into scripture. We're called into outreach and we're called into service. And in all of these things, we see the face of God. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that all prayer is communal. Remember, this is about how to pray. It's about an attitude and a posture of prayer and not what to pray. Because God has created us with a deep need for solitude and for silence. It's just as vital that we meet with God alone. But in this prayer, it reminds us that we do pray in the context of shared lives. To live a prayer-filled life, which I hope is what we're really seeking, is to do life prayerfully together. Now, if this R word is a reminder that our call to prayer is a relational one horizontally, then, of course, Father is a reminder that the very foundation of our prayer life is relational vertically. God is given all sorts of names throughout Scripture, describing his character, describing what he's like to us, all the multifacets of who he is. But Father parent is at the heart of his relationship with each of us. Some of us might struggle to see him in that way depending on our own experiences but that's another reason why we're called out of isolation and into community where we can experience that in a healing place because the relationship that we're invited into is humbling, it's reassuring and it's safe as a child would be with its parents. In Romans 8, 15 and 16, Paul writes, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Some of you will know that this word in the Hebrew, Abba, means Daddy. Jesus was encouraging us to approach our holy, heavenly Father as Daddy. It was a familiar term that little children used for their father. The Spirit of God testifies that we are God's children. There's a whole lot going on in this verse. Firstly, there's this assumption that we've received something from God that has changed us. And that means that our starting point in prayer is not one of exclusion, rejection or fear. We're not on the outside trying to get in. We're not trying to work our way into something, into this relationship with God. Prayer is about experiencing the height and the depth and the breadth of the relationship that we have been given. Secondly, what we've received is liberating. We should know freedom, for where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We were excluded, we were on the outside. Elsewhere, Paul describes us as orphans. We're spiritually parentless. Some of us are literally parentless. Even those of us who have parents haven't been parented well. We don't know what it means to be parented. He also describes us as foreigners. Some of us here are foreigners. We've come from another country and we've come to this country to make it our home. To many of us, the kingdom of God seems like a foreign country. We were outsiders. It is a strange language. There's a strange culture. There's a strange worldview going on here. 
Paul says we were without God. We were without hope in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You're in. You're in. You're on the inside. He's your father, our father. That's your starting point when you come to pray. And of course, all of this is possible because of Jesus, the blood of Christ. But this becomes our experience because of the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. The Holy Spirit was not an afterthought. It's not a, um, you know, you go to the supermarket and it says, buy three, get the third half price. We didn't get the God the Father, God the Son, and then God thought, you know what, I'll throw him for, in for a bargain. You can have the Spirit of God. That's not the way that it works. He is no runner-up to Christ. The Holy Spirit is our very life. If you're bored one evening, instead of putting on Netflix, I challenge you to do a study on the Holy Spirit. Don't think you can do your life without him. If what I'm talking about sounds unfamiliar to you and is not your experience, come plug yourself into the Spirit of God this morning. Trying to do Christianity without the Spirit of God is like trying to make a cup of tea. You've got all the ingredients, your tea bag, your milk, your sugar. You've got your kettle. You've filled it up with water. There's a cable on the end of it. There's a socket. There's a plug. You plug it in. You go and sit down and watch your Netflix. You come back and the kettle hasn't boiled. Well, you didn't switch it on. It needs power. You need power. You cannot do this thing by yourself. Don't expect that you can. You need the Spirit of God. It's by his presence that we get to experience what Christ has accomplished for us. So we pray, our Father in heaven. Now I find this a contradiction because no matter how much I picture God as a loving, welcoming Father, close at hand by the presence of his Spirit in my life, as soon as I pray the rest of that sentence, I immediately see God as far off, distant. He's busy, he's preoccupied with heavenly things. He's in heaven. But understand this, as Jesus prayed this, he's there with the disciples, God. God is there with the disciples. He was close at hand. One of the names for Jesus, my favorite name for Jesus is Emmanuel. It means God with us. It means God in the midst of us, whatever's going on, God in the midst of our lives, heaven come down all around us. Hebrews 4 verse 15 reminds us that we do not have a high priest someone who had to go to the temple for us to make sacrifices that was just an ordinary man. But we have a high priest, Christ Jesus, who is, un, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. God came down to us. When we pray in heaven, we're remembering, yes, God is in heaven, but he came down to earth. He felt flesh and blood. He endured our pain. And because he lived with it and has overcome death itself, he sits above it. He sits beyond it. Not as one who is distant, unmoved or unfeeling, but one who is not unfamiliar or overwhelmed by it. And because of that, we can come to him. Our Father in heaven, we can come with whatever it is that we have to bring. He's not going to be threatened by it. He's not going to be intimidated by it. He's not going to be thrown by it. Do you think sometimes we actually think we bring our stuff to God and it's going to take him by surprise? He's going to be like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that. Because of that, we can come to him with whatever we have to bring. He understands life here on earth, but he is no longer subject to its limitations. And not just that, he lifts us up to be where he is. We get to experience the life that he has now in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. 
When Jesus announced the kingdom of God is at hand, it was like saying it's within arm's reach. Put your hand out in front of you like this. The kingdom of God, it is within arm's reach. If for a moment our eyes were opened to see the closeness of the presence of the kingdom of God, I think we would be a broken mess on the floor. You know, thank goodness we can't see it all. I want to see it all. But thank goodness we can't see. We can't see it all. But as we pray, our Father in heaven, holy is his name, we're reminded of Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, we see that Isaiah saw the holiness of God and he ended up as a broken mess on the floor. He experienced the endless wonder of heavenly worship as angels cried out, holy, 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 and he was crushed by the weight of his own sin. Tony, have you got the next slide? So even as we pray, our Father in heaven, how can we approach this holy God? Isaiah came, he saw God in the midst of worship for who he was, and he was reminded of who he is. I'm not going to read the whole passage through, but some of you will be familiar with it, those of you who aren't. It's in worship that we come, that we approach this holy God. It's only in a humble, adoring attitude of worship, as we did this morning, that he's revealed to us. We see him for who he is. And then we see ourselves as we are. And we're crushed by it. What have we got to give? What have we got to bring? What can we do? There's nothing. And then, in this encounter with him, he changes us. He shows us who we are. Not, not, it, not just in our inadequacy, not just in our emptiness and our weakness, but he shows us how he sees us. He shows us the impact of that reckless love of his on us. He makes us holy so that we can be in his presence when we come to pray. Remember, we've exchanged that spirit of fear for a spirit of adoption, of inclusion, of belonging. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God now. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Having been brought close to him, we see him for who he is, and we see ourselves as we truly are, with all the possibilities. And then, of course, he sends us out, just as he did with Isaiah. The next slide, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Karl Barth was a theologian in Nazi Germany between the two wars. He was a huge influence on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and helped write a declaration for the German churches against the state religion that was being imposed on them. He described prayer in one of my most favorite quotes. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. How we know the disorder of this world. We know the kingdom has come but that it is also not yet fully here. We would only have to look at the headlines this week to see the disorder of this world, to see the disorder in our own hearts, to see the disorder between men and women, to see the disorder between those who have power and those who don't have power, to see the disorder in our governments, to see the disorder in the systems that are meant to serve those who are most in need. We see disorder everywhere. But in prayer, we get to petition for the kingdom. The Greek word here is imperative. It's a demand. When Jesus is suggesting how we pray, he's inviting us to petition God. Your kingdom come. And what does the kingdom look like? If we turn to Isaiah 61, Luke 4. 
In Isaiah 61, we see an expression of the kingdom. Uh, Steve was talking about it a couple of weeks ago. And we see that um, it talks about good news to the poor. It talks about being, binding up the brokenhearted and proclaiming freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. In Luke 4, when Jesus came to announce the coming of the kingdom, he, he read this scripture and um, stood up in church as I am now. He happened to randomly be passed this scripture. It happened to be the reading for that day, a bit like we happened to sing the Lord's Prayer in worship this morning. That's pretty cool. He happened to be given Isaiah 61. He stood up and read it. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me and was able to turn to the congregation and say, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence today. It's been fulfilled today. He was announcing the arrival of this, the breaking through of the kingdom. And what does it look like? It looks like good news to the poor. The good news of the kingdom for the lost causes. I feel like a lost cause sometimes. I don't know how many of you feel like a lost cause I see lost causes when I'm in London all the time. The kingdom is the good news for the lost causes, not just the materially poor, but where there is poverty, where there is loss, where there is bankruptcy, both financial and emotional. How many of us have experienced emotional bankruptcy? How much of us see moral bankruptcy all around us? The kingdom is good news in the midst of bankruptcy. Whatever is good news, it looks like that. So it looks like help and healing. It looks like freedom for those in captivity, literally releasing prisoners from captivity and releasing those who are held mentally captive for those who mental oppression is a very real state every day. Hallelujah. I mean, this is the kingdom. This is what it looks like. And we see it. We see it in our midst. It's extraordinary. So we pray your kingdom come because we want more. We need more. We have to have more. Because when we look at our headlines, there is not enough of the kingdom at work in our world, in our relationships, in our offices, in our families. We need to see more of the kingdom. So we need to be praying, your kingdom come. We're invited to do that. Jesus is laying down the gauntlet, as it were, and saying, you pray, your kingdom come, and I will answer. And we pray, your will be done. Because this is not about our kingdom coming. It's not about our will being done. There can only be one king. And much of our journey is about a surrender of our sovereignty, of relinquishing our control of our own little kingdoms. To God's sovereignty, relinquishing our control to his control and the establishment of his kingdom in our lives so that what overflows out of our hearts is his heart and not everything else that we're carrying around with us. So we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray your kingdom come, we cannot always determine how our prayers are going to be answered. But we do get to participate in God showing up regardless, here and now, on earth. Tony, can I have the next slide? On earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus came, he announced the arrival of his kingdom. That was that. The kingdom had come. But of course, we know this tension between the kingdom come and the kingdom not yet fully here. Oh yeah, I like that slide. That's the one Isaiah 61, Luke 4. I probably put it in out of sequence. It wouldn't be my IT team because they're awesome. Um, when Jesus came, he announced the arrival of this kingdom. That's the scripture I was talking about just now where he says right at the bottom, just below the blurry bit. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
That was it. The kingdom had come. But of course, we know this tension between the kingdom come and the kingdom not yet fully here. And to press on, to press into that, when we see the disorder all around us, takes an energy, takes a hope and a strength that we cannot sustain ourselves. And so we pray. Next slide. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day. I need today what you have for me, God. God knows our material needs and he can meet them. He can do that and he does do that. But he knows our deeper needs too. He knows what it takes to sustain us. Like a parent, attentive to our needs, encouraging, affirming, speaking courage, reminding us of what we're capable of and what he's capable of. We need him and we need to allow him to be more than enough for us. I think to live a prayerful life is this tension between peaceful surrender of our own agendas, of our own stuff, of what we're carrying, and this constant wrestling with the now and the not yet of the kingdom. We see things that we never thought were possible once we get into this kingdom praying, but we also don't see things that we know to God are all too easy. So will we trust God with this? Because in demanding of God, your kingdom come, I think it's also an act of surrender. We're saying, you know best. You know what I need. You know what's required in this situation to teach me how to pray into it. And I won't worry about anything else. It's an incredible lady called Corrie Ten Boom, who was also a survivor of Nazi Germany and of Ravensbrück a concentration camp, who said about worry... Worry is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength, carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Jesus' reference to daily bread would have reminded the disciples of God's provision for the Israelites in the desert, where God gave them bread every day that they were wandering in the desert. But he only gave them enough for each day. Anything that they kept overnight turned moldy. God wants to give us enough for today. He wants to fill you with what you need for today. Trust him. Rely on him. Don't worry about tomorrow because he will provide for tomorrow tomorrow. Today, he will give you enough for today. If this is not our experience, then I would ask you to um, consider what it is that you're feeding yourself on. What is your daily bread? We are already trying to um, teach our girls, we have two girls, nine and five, that it matters what they fill their hearts and their minds with. That just as it matters that they eat healthily, it matters what they feed on. Um, One of them is an avid reader, and it matters to us that she is reading things that are not feeding her imagination with fear. I mean, how many of us choose to watch things that fill us with fear, fill us with anxiety? Spending time in the company of people who make us feel insignificant, who make us feel worthless, who don't challenge us, who don't spur us on. So we should be asking ourselves, what is our, what's my daily bread? What do I feed myself on? Because God has a daily bread for you that is life-giving, that is transformative, and that will change the lives of those around you. In Isaiah 55, it says, Do not feed yourself on what does not satisfy Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? 
Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Let's feed ourselves daily on the things of God. And let's pray, forgive us when we don't. Forgive us, Lord. Most of our sin originates out of trying to meet a very valid need, a very valid desire, a very valid hunger with an unhelpful or unhealthy solution. Our sin results from not trusting God to meet that need and believe that he has it covered, that he has provided it for us. No matter how full our lives are with other things, it doesn't matter how much stuff we have. Those things won't satisfy us unless we have first satisfied our deeper needs in him and the good gifts, the good relationships that he has given us. And so we're invited to keep short accounts with God and with each other. We don't just pray, forgive us. We pray, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Lewis Smeads, a theologian, wrote on forgiveness. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Unforgiveness does nothing but bind us up in the hurt that's already been inflicted on us. It holds us in chains while the other person gets on with their life regardless. Remember, we pray, our Father. Our horizontal relationships matter to God as much as our vertical one does. Our call is to love God and to love our neighbor. If you're wondering what God's will is for your life this morning, that's it. Start there. That's a freebie. Love God, love your neighbor. These things matter to God. And so forgiveness matters to God. We can bring whatever it is that we have, whatever it is that we're wrestling with, whoever it is that we're wrestling with, and release forgiveness, letting go of what we've been holding on to. It's been met in him. The debt has been satisfied in him. It's not about whether they get away unpunished or not. Someone, Jesus, has been punished for their sin, just as he's been punished for your sin. I wonder if one of the reasons that we don't receive answers to our prayers, why we're not satisfied by the things that God has to give us, is that our hands, our hearts are full of other things. As we were singing this morning about the reckless love of God, I was reminded to to press in, to continually be pursuing God for his love for me. When that part of me says, "I I don't know that, I'm not experiencing that to the extent that I'm singing about this morning then I'm asking God, what is it in my heart that's keeping me from doing that? Displace the idols in my heart, God. Displace the kingdom that I've created. Let me be free free of unforgiveness. Don't let me hold on to things that take up, that occupy the space in my heart, in my life that could be yours, that could allow me to experience the reckless love that you have for me. God longs to give us good gifts, but sometimes I think we're just too full of other stuff to receive it. How can we know God's peace if we're holding on to worry? How can we know hope if we won't let go of disappointment? And forgiveness is all about letting go. That's not to say it's easy. So we also pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think we can underestimate the battle that we're in, this disorder and this clash of kingdoms. But you know what? When I was getting ready to um, to do this sermon, when I was prepping for it, I found out that apparently even the Pope struggles with this verse. So that's good, that made me feel better. The suggestion that God would lead us into temptation. 
And I looked at my Bible. I've got a great study Bible that serves me extremely well. But both uh, the Lord's Prayer is in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6. And um, at the bottom of each of my page, it has a, a reference to the verse above. And then it has some information in it. That's where I get most of my material. And it has some information in it. And um, both of these in my study Bible were blank. No reference. Nothing. Not even, well, we're not sure what this means, but some scholars suggest, or something about the Greek imperative, there was nothing. (laughs) However, when I went chasing after what the Pope had to say about it, I found that in this, the language does change. The verb is not in the imperative. It isn't a demand. It's almost like wishful thinking. It's almost like a suggestion. Lead us not into temptation. And of course, we know that Jesus was tempted in every way. In Hebrews, it tells us that. So again, we're in good company. If Jesus hadn't been tempted, if he'd merrily floated above all that we go through in terms of anxiety and expectation, in terms of fear or pride of ambition, you think of him being tempted in the desert and being uh, the, the enemy coming to him and saying, turn this stone into bread to provide for himself or jump off of this church, it's a synagogue, the, the temple, whatever it was, and the angels will cap you. It was all about promoting himself. It was all about accomplishing in himself what God had yet to do in him. Jesus was tempted in every way, and if he wasn't, would he be so compelling a saviour? I don't think he would. It's only because he was fully God and fully man that he's such a compelling individual to us. He was tempted in every way, and yet he remained without sin. So perhaps that leads us, in this instance, to pray. Oh, next slide. Lead us not into temptation. Oh, yeah, that's the bit I'm about to get to. We can pray something along the lines of, God, I know that things are going to be hard today. Conversations I don't want to be a part of. Decisions I don't want to have to make. Places I'm not going to find easy. But would you protect me and don't let temptation turn into sin? There are many places in the Bible where we can pray where we would like God to lead us. My favorite is Psalm 61, verse 2. It says, from the ends of the earth, I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That sense when we feel overwhelmed, when our voice feels so tiny against the noise of everything around us, when we feel overwhelmed by circumstances, there's this cry for God, don't lead me into temptation. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You are the rock that is higher than I. You are above all this. You are beyond all this. And when I step onto you, when I stand in you, I am above these things. The waves lap around my feet, but they do not come up to my neck anymore. So we know that in following his leading, we have his presence, his provision, and his protection. And we have deliverance from evil. To end, Tony, last slide possibly, I don't know. For yours is the kingdom. We prayed that. We sang that this morning, didn't we? I was going to sing it, but I don't think I will. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Technically, this is not part of the original prayer. The early Christians made it up. Can you believe that? It's a good ending though, isn't it? I'm a copywriter. I write things for businesses and charities. I wish I thought of this. Technically, this is not part of the original prayer. It's not in either of the Gospels, but it's probably the oldest piece of Christian writing after the New Testament itself. It reflects the fact that after the events of Christ's resurrection, the early Christians wanted a way to celebrate and express their confidence in a God who could overcome all things, even death itself. I like to think that even though it comes at the end, it undergirds everything. For yours is the kingdom, 
Because yours is the kingdom, give us this day our daily bread. Because yours is the kingdom, lead us not into temptation. Because yours is the kingdom, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. It is the reason that we pray like we do. But to some extent, I don't know whether this is your experience. Of course, when we come to prayer, we're not thinking, is this theologically correct? I hope none of you are doing that. Our, our theological soundness, if you like, comes from doing it, doesn't it? It comes from practice, comes from learning, comes from scripture, comes from doing community life together, that we learn um, again, the, the prayer is about how we pray, not what we pray. We should pray the Lord's Prayer, but it's not like it's the only prayer that we pray. You can't pray anything else. It's not theologically sound. It's not like that. So, so it's important that we understand all of this, that this fuels our prayer. It will make our prayer life more effective, but it will also, it's truth. It brings life to us. That's why it's important that we're not just praying to the God that we would see in our own image but that we are teaching ourselves, that we are learning about the God that we pray to and the kingdom that is at work within us and that we want to see it work around us. However, most of us are just compelled to pray. There was a brilliant article in The Guardian recently saying about how most people pray. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are. Um, it says that people pray not so much for the world around them, but they pray for their loved ones, for their family. Well, of course they do. If someone in your family is hurting, if your spouse, if your parent, if your child is hurting, you don't think, oh gosh, do I believe in God right now? I think you just cry out, oh God, help. We pray so often because we can't help it. Uh, another slide, I can't remember which one it is. C.S. Lewis has this brilliant, uh, a writer said, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. That's definitely my experience. So as we wrap this up, I just want to encourage you. You guys are praying and um, there's nothing better than that. It's just so exciting. And really, I want to fan the flame of what you're doing. For those of you who feel like you're on fire right now, I want to throw petrol at you. Seriously. For those of you who are just, you know, you're... What? That's good. Um, for those of you who it's just burning embers, just burning embers, there's a scripture in Isaiah, I can't think whereabouts it is, and it says um, about being like a smoldering ember, that the Lord will not let you go out. For those of you who are smoldering embers, I would encourage you to get into the prayer room as much as you can, because... Because God is there. I mean, he's here. We know that. But sometimes there's something special going on. And sometimes you know what? There's just something special about you taking those steps. About you putting yourself in a place of receiving. A place where you're paying attention, where you're fixing your eyes, where you're feeding yourself on something that's going to set you alight. So this morning we're reminded, we pray, our Father. We pray to a good, good Father. He is closer to us than we know having lived life in the midst of this disordered world. The Psalms tell us he is particularly close to the brokenhearted. And yet he is neither threatened or overwhelmed by the things that threaten or overwhelm us. And he can keep us safe so that nothing can separate us from his love. In worship, we see him as he is and we're reminded of our sin, together with an invitation to come, to be forgiven and to forgive others. 
We get to participate in the kingdom coming, but we've got to be willing to surrender. We've got to be willing to lay our stuff down. It's not easy. It is a battle. But the Spirit of God has been given to us. And as we come daily to receive all that he has for us, trusting that he is sufficient for us, we will find the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the courage and the kindness that we need to sustain us in a life of prayer. Let's stand and let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. I've got this on the screen. Oh, look at that, as if by magic. Um, Some of us have prayed the Lord's Prayer over decades. Your language might be much more traditional than mine. Some of you may not pray it very often. You need to keep your eyes on the screen. But I just want to encourage you, just let, we're going to pray together, but it doesn't matter if what you're saying doesn't sound like your neighbor. I also want to encourage you, as we know, many of you are here from other countries. When you learned the Lord's Prayer, it was in your native tongue. If you want to pray the Lord's Prayer in your own language right now, then you do that. But let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, and then we'll do some more worship and we'll pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I just encourage you to keep with your eyes closed and just remain in our posture of prayer. I, just, I trust that the Lord has been speaking to you this morning in the midst of worship, uh, in the midst of my talk, quite possibly, and even in this moment. I think for some of us, um, there is stuff in our hearts that we need to lay down. You know, you're, you're singing these words and you're knowing it's true, but it's not necessarily your experience. For some of you, you are trying to boil uh, a kettle without turning the power on. Don't try and be a Christian without the Spirit of God in you. Don't try to do the things of God without the Spirit of God in you. So some of you need to come this morning. You need to experience, you need to receive the Holy Spirit for the first time.